Good morning, everyone. I think it's really important as someone who gets up and, and has the opportunity to preach that if you feel you have made a mistake or said something wrong, that you should correct yourself. And so there's a couple things that were brought to my attention by my loving family that I may have gotten wrong last week. So let me, you know, for the sake of heresy, correct myself. Uh, first of all, what I meant to say, if I can just get that to work. What I meant to say last week is zucchini is yucky, and I said asparagus is yucky. Truth is, five days in a row, a row of asparagus, it's yucky too, but no, zucchini, unless it's with chocolate and made into some kind of a cake, is yucky. So that was, apparently I said, uh, what did I say, asparagus is yucky, and my wife quickly corrected me to my family members that know it was zucchini he probably meant. Uh, so that was one. And secondly, now you got to know when, you, when I prepare a sermon anyways, and I'm thinking, you know what, I want to ask a question, and I'm actually going to field answers. There's a little bit of fear that goes through you, because what if someone gives an answer that's so profound or so out there, you don't even really understand what they said, how do you respond to it? Then there's the other fear is that someone is going to jump right to the climax of your message and give the Sunday school answer. But I wasn't prepared for those who are so indoctrinated by the Beatles that when I said, what money can't buy, that I got the answer from Pastor Al, amongst others, that money can't buy love. And what I wanted you to say, and some did say, money can't buy happiness, but apparently I kept repeating that money can't buy love, which has nothing to do with what I was preaching about. So I meant to say money can't buy happiness. I don't understand why people like listening to the Beatles or why that music would be in their heads, but I can introduce you to some new genres of music that maybe will uh, help you out. Anyways, I had to correct those two things. But seriously, I did hear a number of comments after the message and through the week and had some conversations about some of the things that were said. And there were some comments, there were some questions. Uh, I'm going to address a couple of those as I go through today's message. But one of the comments that was said to me was, Brent, I don't think I'm poor, but I'm glad I'm not rich. And I thought, you know what, a good question to ask, and you don't have to feel this one because you'd really throw me off if you're really honest. Here's the question. How rich are you? Do you consider yourself wealthy? And I get it, like saying, I am rich. It's kind of an uncomfortable, boastful thing to say. I don't know how many of you get up in the morning and look at your bank account and go, I'm rich. But how rich are you? And believe it or not, it's actually an easy question to answer. Because there's a number of websites that you can actually go to and put in your income, and it compares your income to the average income of everyone in the world and puts you in a percentile. And I'm not going to go into the exact details and get really specific, but if you make a half-decent income and you live in Peterborough, and I'm rounding down you are in the top 1% of the world as far as how rich you are. And it's actually like point 
something of a percent. But let's just say you're in the top percent. If you live in the Peterborough area and you make enough money to pay your bills and you know, have some entertainment, go out to a restaurant once in a while, you are actually in the top 4% of income earners in the world. If you live in the Peterborough area and you are at what we would, I guess in Canada, say is the poverty line, you're just teetering on that. You're actually in the top 16% of income earners in the world. You know, one of the problems that has been raised about the text that we looked at last week and we're looking at this week, and if you don't even know what the text is, is James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Um, one, of the, one of the problems that has been raised is the question of relevancy, right? And so that was kind of addressed by that comment that I was uh, shared last week. I don't think I'm poor. I'm glad I'm not rich. Because you can read what James says here, and you can conclude, well, I'm not that poor, and I'm certainly not rich. So what James has to say doesn't apply to me. It must apply, especially what James says to the rich, to the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffetts of the world. And so we just pass by what James has to say. But according to the average income across the world, pretty well, or maybe every person in here, is what could be defined as rich. And so maybe what James has to say to the rich here does apply to us, and we need to listen to what he has to say. And if you weren't here last week, you might be wondering what in the world I'm talking about, and at least I've cleared up the zucchini and asparagus problem, but what in the world are we talking about? Or if you were here last week, maybe you need a refresher of what we were talking about. And so our text, as I said, is James 1 verses 9 through 12. And last week, we just looked at verse 9. And I began by sharing a personal story of an employee that I hired who, in the eyes of the world, had hit the bullseye. He was a a, a rags-to-riches story. He went from people not knowing who he was, being insignificant, being very poor, uh, powerless, uh, to being in a position of great significance and status and and had lots of money and could do all sorts of things uh, with that money. And I confessed that I found many times being envious of of the power, the status, the significance, the bank account, the nice things that he could buy and drive uh, that he had. And I also said that it caused me to realize where I probably fell on the scale of significance from the world's point of view, which is often based on money and status and and position uh, and the whatnot. And we found out that the reverse is true. Like when when you find your significance in the things of the world, And that was a question I asked. I should raise the question again. One of the first questions I asked last week was, what is it that you look to to find your significance? What is the measure of ultimate significance in your world? And I said that that's the thing that you devote most of your time and energy to. Uh, That is what you think. If you can hit the bullseye, if you can attain the goal, uh, if you can hit that bullseye, 
you will find the importance, the significance, perhaps even the security that you so long for. But the reverse of that is true as well. If, if you don't hit the bullseye, if this is what the world says is ultimately significant, and you can't even come close to that, then it puts you in a pretty desperate situation. It, it leaves you feeling powerless, leaves you feeling insignificant. And we've seen all along in, in this series of James is that's the reality uh, of the original audience. The majority, the, the high majority of those who would have heard James's message were in that situation. Poverty was a definite trial for them. Life was desperate. They felt insignificant. And yet we saw last week that James had this startling message for them. A message that I think applies to us today, and a message that I believe is equally as true for those who would see themselves as being poor uh, and those who would see themselves as being rich. And that is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you've got to look beyond the measure of what the world deems as significance but we need instead to find our ultimate significance in who we are and what we are in Jesus Christ. And and that's the foundation of last week's message, and that's the foundation of this week's message. We have to look beyond what the world has to say is significant and instead find our ultimate significance in who we are and what we are in Jesus Christ. And so if you've got your Bible open, uh, we began at verse 9 last week, and we saw James's word to the poor. I'm just going to quickly summarize what James's word to the poor was. In verse 9, he says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. And this is one of the things that someone talked to me about this week and didn't challenge me, but encouraged me that when you speak about this topic, you really need to make sure that people understand that being poor which is the paraphrase of what James has said here. James has said, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ to find themselves in humble circumstances, which can be translated poor, if you just are narrowing that down to being, I don't have enough or I don't have a lot of money, therefore I am poor, you miss a lot of people with the net that should be um, caught by that net of humble circumstances. And so when James is saying those who are followers of Jesus who find themselves in humble circumstances, he's not just saying just those of you who don't have enough money. But I said this last week, but I want to emphasize it again, just so there's an understanding. Uh, it, It includes those who feel that they're ignored discarded by society. Uh, They find themselves on the lower rung of society's ladder. They feel like a second class or a a third class citizen. Uh, You're carrying with you baggage from a a sinful past. You've got financial scars. Uh, You have a disability. Uh, You are a victim of race or prejudice. All of these things are captured by this net of humble circumstances. And I think that captures a lot more of us than just, I don't have enough money. And what's James's message to those who are followers of Jesus, who find themselves victims of humble circumstances? And it's a startling message. James says, you should take pride. Literally, you should boast in your high position. The world says you are lowly, but you should boast 
Be proud about the fact that you have an exalted position. And so last week, we, we flushed that out. What, what does James mean? And what James is saying to those believers in humble circumstances is this. The world may deem you to be irrelevant, insignificant, but in the terms of the gospel, you're a treasure. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son or daughter of God. You're united with Christ. You're joint heirs with Christ. You're led by the Spirit. You've been made kings and princes and on and on and on. No matter how lowly the world may think of you, in God's eyes, and that's the opinion that matters. We talked about that last week too. In in God's eyes, the poorest follower of Jesus is richer than the richest person in the world. And so that was James's word to the poor. So now we're going to carry on in verse 10, and we're going to see James's word to the rich. And so in verses 10, he says, But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business." And I mentioned last week that there's a couple of interpretive questions that we have to ask of the text. And I said I was going to leave one of the questions till today. And that's the question, who is James referring to? And that's a question that we can look at from a couple of different angles. So James has been talking to believers in humble circumstances. And now he's saying to the rich. Is he talking to rich Christians? Or is he talking to rich non-Christians. Because if you follow through the rest of verse 10 and 11, if he's talking about rich non-Christians, he's really describing the ultimate judgment of those who don't put their faith in Jesus. But perhaps he's talking to rich Christians. Well, the message is a little bit different. Personally, well, let let me say, scholars, those who know a whole lot more than I do, it's probably a 50-50 split. Uh, the book that we're using as a resource for this series, um, what's Moo's first name? Because that sounds really crazy. Douglas Moo, yes. So when we say Moo, we're not imitating a cow. (laughs) It's the author of the commentary that we are using as a resource, obviously along with scripture, um, for this series. And and Douglas Moo uh, and and other scholars that I would lean towards, uh, lean towards, it just makes sense that James is talking to Christians who are rich. It just just goes along with the flow of what he's saying. But another question then we would ask uh, is, what does it mean to be rich? Right? It's the question of relevancy. Like, okay, so me compared to someone who's living in a third world country who doesn't have electricity, running water, doesn't have a phone, doesn't have a car, doesn't have any of the things that we enjoy. Yeah, I get it. I'm rich. But, But am I really rich? Like, what does it mean to be rich? Because I think we would define rich as being someone who's accumulated much, uh, doesn't have any wants or needs, can buy what they want, can pay all their bills, and have got more money than they know what to do with, and they're secure for the future. Like, like that's rich. But are we rich? Because according to what I said at the beginning, we are rich compared to most people in the world. So is this really relevant for us, or is it extremely relevant for us? 
And here's what I want to suggest. I think what James is going to say applies to anyone who finds themselves tempted to turn our trust, our dependency, our commitment, to try to find our security, peace, happiness in the things of the world at the cost of our wholehearted commitment, trust, devotion, significance in Jesus. Does that include most of us? Because I know that includes me. Because there are times that I'm tempted to put my trust and dependency and my energy in the things of the world, and it comes at a cost. Because it comes at the cost of my full commitment, my full devotion, my full trust and dependency in Jesus. And what James wants us to understand is what I've just described there, which I think now puts us all or most of us into the net of maybe what James is going to say to the rich applies to us. James would tell us that is the trial of being rich. That is the temptation that comes with riches. And that's a really odd phrase to hear and to say that there is a trial of riches. Last week we talked about the trials of poverty and we get that. James's original audience, they lived it, right? They, they understood what it was to be lowly in the eyes of the people that lived around them and the circumstances they found themselves in. And it, and it came with a response by many of them. They questioned their faith. They questioned God. They turned from their faith. They, they, they hid their faith under a bushel so that they could live amongst those who didn't believe what they believed and, and not pay the price because of it. But there's a trial of richness or a trial of riches. How can that be? Because that's not what we've been led to believe, right? The world tells us that becoming rich is a goal. Like, Becoming rich is the pinnacle. You've, you've arrived. Some would describe it as a, it's an obvious blessing from God. It's interesting to see what Jesus had to say about riches. And I, I got a couple of, of verses just to read out here. In Matthew 19, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In Luke, but woe to you who are rich. You've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and God. And money, in Luke 6, blessed are you who are poor. If you were to go into the Old Testament, into Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty eight. whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Proverbs eighteen eleven. the rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. They imagine it to be a high wall of safety. 
uh, Proverbs 23, in the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. And so, no pun intended, the million-dollar question is, what is the Bible teaching about riches? Is riches bad? Is being rich evil? Is being rich a sin? I don't think that's what the Bible is telling us. I don't think that's what the Bible, the Bible's message regarding riches is. First of all, money in and of itself is neutral, right? It's, it's just ink on paper. But money can cause us to do crazy things, right? Some of you probably, look, I just, it's a $1 U.S., one dollar, a U.S. one dollar bill. And I'm sure there's some of you I know. You pulled out a U.S. dollar. Wow, that's got to be worth like a million dollars. It's just a dollar, right? Or dollar 35 Canadian and it's just ink on paper. And there is really yucky ink and paper down there, but it, it, it's one dollar. But if I pulled out this one, a $50 U.S. dollar, captures more people's attention. It mesmerizes people. Pull out a wad of dollars and, and, and watch how you can get attention. Have you ever sat in a Tim Hortons and pulled out your wallet and you, all of a sudden you're ca- counting your cash and all of a sudden you, people are staring at you? Maybe they think you're weird that you're counting your money in a Tim Hortons, but mo- money can cause people to do some crazy things. And, and, and I think that's what the message of Scripture is. It's, it's not that... Being rich is, is, is evil or bad or a sin or, or having much is. But the Bible wants to warn us that riches can be dangerous. Uh, having riches is a test. It, it comes with temptations. Riches is a tool that is used by the enemy to get us to turn our eyes and our focus off Jesus and to put it onto ourselves. And so I don't think the Bible says that having much is a sin. I think what the problem is, not the problem being having much, but I think the problem is what we do with what we have. And what we do to get what we have. And so I want you to understand that what James is saying here, he's not condemning wealth. But what he's doing here is urging those who have much to have a proper perspective regarding what you have. Because here's the reality. Having much, maintaining what we have, trying to get more, can control us. It can give us a a complex of how significant, how important, how superior we are the more that we have. It, It could be the place that we're trying to find happiness and fulfillment The temptation is that we'll find security in how big our bank account is. 
or how much the total is of our RSPs or, or what we believe to be the selling price of our home. That's, that's our security for the future. And the temptation is to, to rest on that. We can be enslaved by what we have. We can be enslaved with our desire to have more and to attain it. So enslaved that it takes up almost all of our time and our energy and our devotion. And that comes between us and our relationship with the Lord. Now, I don't know if I'm just speaking to myself, but I know that there's times I know that my devotion, my commitment, my energies are going towards everything from an earthly perspective, what I can earn, what I can make, what I can buy, the possessions I can have. And it's coming at a cost of my time and energy and devotion to the Lord. And James says, that's the trial that comes along with riches. That's the temptation that comes along with riches. Not that being rich is a problem. My goodness, the the, the Christian world is so indebted to believers who are wealthy and who have built schools and hospitals and funded uh, ministries and on and on and on. That's not what James is saying. What he's saying is that it can be dangerous, it can be a temptation, that it can be a trial. And against the backdrop of all of that, as we continue in verses 10 and 11, James goes, and what's the point? And he gets really harsh here, if you paraphrase it, like I'm going to. What is the point? Because you're all going to die someday and you can't take anything with you. And he uses a pretty simple illustration from nature to illustrate that point. We all have seen a garden, a beautiful garden, that one day, five days, two weeks later, is dead. Those beautiful flowers, plants have shriveled, dried up, and they're gone. I was thinking that. I was thinking of my dad. My dad used to always question why men would buy their wives flowers. Why would you spend money on flowers? They're just going to die like three or four days later. And I go, Dad, it's not, you know, that's not the point. It's, it's, it's what's behind you buying those flowers that matters. He goes, well, that's fine. Buy them a cactus. And our house was filled with cactuses that my dad bought for my mom. I had the same, so anyways, I had, don't read too much into what James is saying to my dad's use of cactuses. But it, underlying that was just the flowers are just going to die. And James uses that illustration because we all understand it. And he's going, life, riches, life itself, it's temporary. It's fleeting. You know, last week I said, you know, a great leveling ground is the foot of the cross. Right? Rich or poor, we all come before the cross of Christ empty-handed, pockets turned inside out, nothing to offer, nothing that we can give that can get us one step closer to being in heaven. We're totally dependent upon the grace and mercy of Christ. Our our socioeconomic position, uh, our achievements, our titles, our position uh, doesn't earn us any greater status in heaven. It's all dependent upon what Christ has done for us. And so there's that great leveling ground at the foot of the cross. But you know what another great leveling ground is? A cemetery. 
But what do you find in cemeteries? Dead people. You don't think you went to cemetery and go, oh, there's some rich dead people and there's some poor dead people. No, they're, they're, they're dead people. Death has this way of, of minimizing categories, uh, eliminating things that distinguish a person because, because they're dead, right? You die, you can't take anything with you. One, one preacher said that when the game is over, the, the king and the pawn all go back into the same box, right? And that James, that's what James wants us to understand, Life is temporary. Life is fleeting. So why would you bother to compromise your commitment and your devotion and your trust and the security that you find in Jesus with the things of the world that are just temporary and fleeting? What is it that we're living for? Who is it that we're living for? And that's a question I ask myself and a question I ask you. Who is it that you're living for? And so what does James say is the antidote to the trials and the temptation that come along with riches? It's perspective. And we see that in verse 10. He says, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. The rich should boast in their humiliation. And what does James mean? Because it's an odd phrase. So the rich who are elevated in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the world, the rich, those who have much, they have arrived. They are the man. They are the woman. They've figured it out. And is James saying, take pride in your riches? No. Boast, boast about your possessions and your positions. No, James said, they're going to just fade away. Boast in your humiliation. Boast in the fact that just like those who find themselves in humble circumstances, you are 100% dependent upon the grace and mercy of Christ. That you identify with Jesus as your Lord and Savior, one who is rejected and despised by the world that holds you in such high esteem. I'll read from uh, Jeremiah. Boast in the fact that you know and you understand God. That's what you boast in. Going way back to what I said is the, the undergirding foundation of this message and last week's message is you boast in the fact that you realize that the measure of significance is not what the world says is significant but rather our ultimate significance, our ultimate riches is found in who we are and what we are in Jesus Christ. So we get to the end of verse 11 and James has put both poor and rich on on equal ground. And then we come to verse 12. I got to tell you something about verse 12. We're going to conclude with verse 12 and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on verse 12. Verse 12 is kind of an odd verse for those who are studying and and, and doing a sermon series because it can fit with the verses that go before. It can fit with verses 13 to 15 that Al is going to be speaking on next week. And before the Pete decided to go crazy and, and make it all the way to the Memorial Cup, Brian was going to speak on verses 13 and 15 next week. Well, actually, he was going to speak on this week. And I 
emailed Brian. I said, you know, I think verse 12 should go with 9 and 11. Maybe you should do 13 and 15. And then when he wasn't going to be here, then I thought, okay, well, I'll do verses 9 to 11. Then I'll just do verse 12 as a standalone because it could just be a standalone message. And then as I was working on my message this week, I thought I should tell Al, maybe you should do verse 12 to go along with verses 13 and 15. So there is freedom to touch on verse 12 next week because I'm not going to go too deep into it. But verse 12 is like this hinge. It goes with what went before and it... And it, it opens the door into what Al's going to say next week. So I want to, and, and one thing I learned in seminary and preaching class is you should never, three quarters of the way through your message, change your topic. Because people will lose focus, they'll turn the other way, they'll do, like that. So hopefully I'm, I'm still keeping the flow of what I've been talking about. Because I want to look at verse 12 quickly, but looking back to what I've addressed a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. And that's that money can't buy happiness. But what if there was a way, there was a path to true happiness? Right? That's, that's what we want. I don't think there's anyone here that wouldn't say, I want a happy life. I want a blessed life. I want a fulfilled life. I, I think that's right at the core of who we are as humans, right? We want to be happy. Problem is the majority of the people in the world look for happiness in all the wrong things, Right? And we as Christians make this bold claim. We tell the world that you are not going to find joy, peace, happiness, true fulfillment in the things of this world. Sex, drugs, entertainment, possessions, money, big bank account, all those things aren't going to give you those, those things that I just mentioned. I can hear the words of Billy Graham because he used to say it over and over and over. Real joy, true peace, real fulfillment is only found in Jesus Christ. Right? That's a claim that we make. And in verse 12, James says that there is a path to happiness. And that's by being blessed by God. In fact, the word blessed can be translated happy. But more, much more than just the emotional happiness, right? That goes along with, you know, positive circumstances. This is a happy that, that remains constant and, and actually undergirds and is present in situations and circumstances of sadness and sorrow. And James says that is possible. There is a path to experiencing that fullness of happiness, and it comes by being blessed by God. And how are we blessed by God? Well, look at verse 12. Blessed are those who persevere under trial, because when they've stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And James tells us that the path to happiness involves trials. And we've been talking about trials since the second message in this series. Not just trials concerning money, but, but just the trials of life. Those things that can threaten our faith and our faithfulness to God. James says, blessed are those who persevere under trial. I think a key word there is under. In the Greek, that word literally pictures a soldier who's standing in position ready to fight. And when the enemy comes, and when the battle gets heated, when other people are running, and uh, they're, they're being cowardly, uh, giving up, that soldier who's, who perseveres 
under trial is the one who stands firm, committed to the team, takes one for the team. And that's what James is saying. Blessed are those who persevere under trial, who stand firm, who keep their ground, who remain faithful to their side. And the reality of life is that, that we all face trials, right? Someone said that, that every human being is, one of, is in one of three stages of trial. They either are in trial, they've just come out of a trial, or they've got trials coming and they may not even be aware of them. So we all face the trials, the difficulties, the challenges that go along with living in a sinful world. And James doesn't offer any advice on how to avoid trials. He doesn't give us instruction how you can quickly get out of a trial. But he offers a promise. If you persevere under trial, you stand your ground, you remain faithful and devoted and committed to Christ, regardless of the circumstances, there is a blessing from God. You will be blessed by God. And you will be approved by God. Uh, the NIV says that when you have stood the test, it literally means when you've passed the test, when you have been approved by God. So those who are willing to persevere under trial are blessed by God. They are approved by God. And then the verse ends and says, and you will be rewarded by God. It says in the final part of verse 12, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And since the coronation was only a number of weeks ago, we probably think of that big crown that King Charles has on his head. That's not what James is referring to. This is the laurel wreath that would have been given to the victor in an athletic competition. And James is saying, those who persevere under trial, who are approved by God, will receive a prize. The victor's crown the reward will come here as we're living in this world, but, but ultimately it's, it's, it, the culmination of it is in heaven. When, when we stand before our Lord and Savior and he puts this crown upon our head, this victor's wreath and says, well done, good and faithful servant. How that should motivate us to live life with a proper, a heavenly perspective than the earthly perspective that we often have so, so money can't buy happiness. But those who don't look for their significance to the measure of what the world says is significant, but instead look to who they are and what they are in Christ to find their ultimate significance, who are willing to persevere under trial, they will experience and find true joy, a happiness that lasts so money can't buy happiness, but I know a place you can find it. Arnie and Katie and team, come on out.